if you would this morning turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, I hope you remember kind of where we were in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, I know it's been a, a couple of weeks, but um, today uh, we're considering or uh, continuing this series on the, the call for a king, Israel's demand uh, for a king. Um, and today I think our title kind of clues us in to where we are. We're calling it the introduction to Saul. Um, but if you remember where we we left off last at the end of, of chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. It says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Um, I, I believe the right understanding of that text was kind of how we explored it a few weeks ago, that God says he is going to give Israel what they've demanded, um, even though it did not match up with his timing and his perfect will. Okay? Um, eventually, they were to have a king. That was God's plan, and I believe David was, um, was the fulfillment of that promise. But um, this is before the time was ripe for that, and they make a demand. God says, I'm going to give you what you want. Um, so Samuel shares with the nation um, God's reply, and then he dismisses them to return to their homes um, to really await God's answer to that request. Um, the who and the when uh, of the king are sort of left hanging out uh, there for um, just God's timing, and that really leads us to where we are in today's text and uh, this introduction of, of Saul. Uh, let's begin by standing out of reverence respect to the Word of God. We're just going to read 1 Samuel um, chapter 9. We'll just read verses 1 and 2. We're going to study further than that, but this really is that first introduction to Saul. So we start there, 1 Samuel 9 verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorth, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. You may be seated. That's kind of a, a fitting beginning to where we are. We're considering the man... Um, Saul himself, and now verse 1 does start with um, the genealogy, you might say. Really, it's his father that first comes on the scene. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, um, but then the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorth, son of Aphia, um, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. Um, that is about Saul's father and his genealogy. Um, but again, if, if we've been studying it along in, in order, we came to the end of 1 Samuel 8. That verse 22 that we read, Samuel said, God's going to give you a king, sends everybody home. So we kind of have to know as we move to chapter 9 uh, that the king is going to show up. And, and so I think we're to read this knowing um, this is the introduction to God's answer to Israel's demand. Um, that's where we, where we are. Now, even this is, I, I think it's not an accident the way this is worded and lined out for us. Um, and it really has some echoes um, in Israel's past. If you remember how the book of 1 Samuel began, 1 Samuel 1.1 looks an awful lot like 1 Samuel 9.1. Uh, there was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkaniah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. Okay? Now that's very, very similar to what we just read. In both cases... Um, you have a, a moment in time in the nation of Israel, um, and it just kind of begins, um, the text begins with an eye on what sure seems to be an ordinary family of, um, of Israel doing ordinary things. 
Um, but we know that chapter 1 and that introduction um, leads to Samuel. Um, chapter 9, it's going to lead to Saul. And yet that's probably where the connection between the two men uh, should end, or the comparison at least. They, they don't share much in common. Um, I, I will say that I think Saul is one of the more complex um, uh, individuals in God's Word. Um, I've often studied him kind of as a cartoon character. Um, he's all bad. He's destined for failure. Um, I think there's a lot more to Saul than that. Um, now, we know from the beginning, and I think this is probably why we tend to study him um, one-dimensionally, is we, we know he was not God's first choice for the kingdom. He was not the perfect plan, okay? Um, but he was the man appointed to meet Israel's untimely demand for a king in this text. Um, none of that means that he was destined for failure from the beginning. He's not a cartoon or cardboard figure. Um, he's not meant to be seen one-dimensionally. I believe, like all mankind, um, Saul is given a series of choices to make. Um, God gives him every opportunity uh, to do well. Um, in many ways, I think when we see Saul in the Old Testament, we should think of another Saul in Scripture. Saul who becomes Paul. Most of us are more familiar with that Saul. Um, so we've got a Saul in the Old Testament. We've got a Saul in the New Testament. Um, both of them, by the way, are sons of Benjamin. Okay, Maybe uh, that's an accident, maybe not, I'm not sure. They both show us, though, the truth about life, if, if you want to kind of indulge in a few cliches for a moment. Um, I think when you consider Saul of old and Saul of the New Testament, um, we should think about the idea it's not how you start, but how you finish. Okay, um, It's not over till it's over, the jury's still out, uh, don't count your chickens before they hatch, all's well that ends well. Um, again, if you're familiar with those two men, you might understand why I would use those phrases. Because if you think about the Old Testament Saul, I would argue, um, and I haven't considered it enough in the past, but we'll see it pretty clearly, the Old Testament Saul actually starts out really, really good. Um, but most of us probably know that he ends really, really bad. Um, the New Testament Saul, if you're familiar with Saul's persecution of the church and what Paul does um, before his conversion, he starts out really, really bad and ends up really, really good. And so there's kind of this comparison or contrast, and we kind of as individuals, I think, have to decide uh, who do we want to be? Uh, which would you prefer? You want to start good and end bad, or you want to start bad and end good? Now, if you're really smart, you'd say, well, can I start good and end good? You know, I mean, and, and I hope maybe that's the case for some of us today, but it's not always that way. And so both of these men, I think, show us that um, it's not how you begin, um, but it's how you deal with the adversity of life, how you interact with God, um, and hopefully, even if you didn't start so well, you can finish well. Um, this man, Saul, in the Old Testament, is the man that Israel is given as their first king. As theologian G. Coleman Luck has put it, he is the man who in all Israel came nearest to fulfilling their idea of what a king should be. I really believe that is a true statement, um, and we'll see why as we move on. Now, if we read ahead a little bit, even in this chapter, um, theologian J. Vernon McGee has put it this way, Israel's king, um, we'll find, is out looking for his father's donkeys, um, while Israel's donkeys were looking for a king. But um, anyway, 
Those are not my words, anyway, but it's a good way to look at it. Let's start into the breakdown of this text. We're considering the man Saul. Uh, first, we're introduced to his ancestry, uh, kind of the way God's word typically works. A man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, that's his father. Um, son of Abiel, that would be his grandfather, and so on. Son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, uh, a man of wealth. His ancestry is really not noble. Um, if you're wondering, other scriptural references to the older men in this lineage are pretty sketchy and uninformative at best. Um, but this list, it doesn't tell us nothing. Um, as we see, he is descended from um, the tribe of Benjamin. Um, he comes from a wealthy or powerful family, depending on how you want to translate that last word. It's probably a combination of both. It's used elsewhere in Scripture to describe Boaz in Ruth 2, verse 1. Um, at King Jeroboam is described with that word in 1 Kings. Um, those are not exactly nobodies, so I, I wouldn't infer that Saul, in comparison, is a nobody either. Um, but it's probably the fact that he's a Benjamite that should really stand out. If you know God's word at all, um, you should be familiar with the idea that God's word ultimately says that the king of Israel will come from the tribe of Judah. Um, as we see, the, the true king will be the line of the tribe of Judah as we think of Christ himself. Um, you may remember Jacob's uh, patriarchal kind of prophetical prayer over his children, which is really where we see this prophecy uh, first come to Genesis in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Okay? It, when, there's, when there's a king in Israel, he'll be of the line of Judah. And nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. And we should know, ultimately, after certainly journeying through Christmas and um, the Immaculate Birth and all those things, um, that all of this ultimately finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, and so we should know as we begin this look at Saul that no Benjamite is destined to sit on the eternal throne, all right? So there's, there's already an issue if we're being honest. But remember, this is the man that God gave to Israel to satisfy their demand for a king. He's not the man that God has chosen as king. Saul is a stopgap measure. He, he is not God's best. And, and even... Uh, Beyond God's choice of the tribe of Judah, there should be some other troubling aspects if we're familiar with the tribe of Benjamin at all. Even if you go back to that same um, patriarchal prayer um, in verse 27, um, Jacob prayed, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. That doesn't sound altogether good, no matter how you want to infer the prophecy there. Um, and actually, I would argue that those words foreshadow um, one of Saul's biggest mistakes. In fact, kind of the mistake that ushers in the end of his reign is um, Israel is interacting with the Amalekites. Again, if you're familiar with some of this story, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, there's a, a big battle. They take some spoil. They're not supposed to take any spoil. They're supposed to destroy it. And Saul holds some back. He's dividing the spoil in that text. And that really um, brings the judgment of God upon him. But um, outside of that even, um, more familiar perhaps, something we've studied not that long ago. If you remember our look at the book of Judges, uh, particularly chapter 20 and 21, where it's just entire chaos and there's nothing redeeming there. You may remember the sin of the Gibeonites. Um, that's a city within Benjamin, by the way. It's the tribal city of Benjamin. Um, all that, uh, you know, we don't want to graphically display it all again, but the homosexuality, the brutal rape and death of a concubine, the resulting civil war, which almost eradicates the tribe of Benjamin. Anybody remember any of that? 
Okay, those are the Benjamites. It's not that long ago in Israel's history. Okay, we're not talking about a thousand years. We're talking about 50, 60 years maybe at best, all right? It's not that far back into the rearview mirror. And so here we pick up, and we have a Benjamite being chosen as the first king. It's not very inspiring if we're being honest. Even our most recent encounter with Benjamite, just in the book of 1 Samuel, wasn't all that inspiring. You may remember um, 1 Samuel chapter 4. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line, came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. Now you may say, well, that's not his fault. He got chosen to be a messenger. And that's true, but here's the reality at this time. When the news was good, a worthy man was typically chosen as a messenger. Well, on this day, the news is altogether bad. Um, it's horrific, in fact. Eli's sons were dead. Um, Israel had been thoroughly defeated in battle, almost wiped out to a man. The, the ark had fallen into captivity, the Philistines. And so I, I don't think it's a coincidence that they choose a man of Benjamin to bear the news. I, I think they were still laboring under the weight of their kind of nasty tribal reputation at the time. And so here we are in 1 Samuel 9, meeting Israel's first king, and he's a Benjamite. It's not a very inspiring start. Um, even worse, if we flash forward a little bit, and there's a, another little footnote that we'll see in the next chapter. First uh, Samuel 10, 26, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Now, that's a positive note, and we'll consider that when we get to chapter 10, but it's that first point that should kind of send a little shiver down your spine if, if you're familiar. Uh, that All that issue in Judges 20, 21, it began in the city of Gibeah. The Gibeonites were altogether wicked. Um, and so what this tells us is Saul is from that town, and it's very likely that he had been influenced by some of the wickedness uh, that started all the problems for Israel back in Judges 20. 2021. Now, some of those men had died because of God's judgment, but I don't believe all of them had, and I, I believe they had probably influenced Saul as he was raised up in the city of Gibeah uh, among the tribe of Benjamin. Again, I'm going to tell you, none of this lines up particularly good um, for Israel's first king or for Saul's background. But it's not all bad. We see his attributes next. In verse 10, he, um, Saul's daddy had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, whether intentionally or not, um, I, this text kind of reminds me of Samuel's warning to the people uh, in our, our previous text. Back in chapter 8, um, Saul or Samuel had told them that uh, the king will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and, and put them to his work. Well, uh, one, we're going to see in a minute that there are some missing donkeys, so maybe we should think of that text because of that. But also, he tells us then that the king is going to take the best of their young men. If we're being honest and we read verse 2, just as it's written, um, he's a handsome young man. There's not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he's taller than any of the people. You could make a case that on first blush, Saul is one of the best of their young men. Um, at least in terms of appearance and size, um, he's the best. That's what's being emphasized here. Um, so we got to know he, he looks the part. Even in today's television age, he would have been a heartthrob, a, a man who immediately turned heads and, and had our attention when he walked in the room. He would have looked like a natural leader. Now, we're smart enough to know that looks can be deceiving, right? 
right? Maybe, you know. Uh, eventually, that's one of the things when we get to the introduction of David, we'll see. David doesn't look the part, um, but he's God's man. And Saul looks the part, but he's been rejected by God. But at least on the surface here, he looks the part. Um, because why? If you break it down, it tells us very clearly he's handsome. Um, handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. I, I don't think we're to read. This is not hyperbole. This is not exaggeration. I think we're to read this exactly as it's written. Saul was the best-looking man in Israel, okay? Um, and if Israel's going to pick its king, they're going to start with someone who looks like he belongs in the pages of GQ magazine, right? And that's the way the nation was thinking. They wanted a king like what? Like all the nations had a king. It's a new season of The Bachelor, and they're not going to feature a guy who doesn't look like a natural star. Okay, and that's kind of the way I, I read this. And, and that's not all, though. He's not just handsome, but also in height. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than, um, than any of the people. Now, I think, obviously, we can infer for, for him to be that handsome, he had to also be well apportioned. You know, he's not six foot six and, and 98 pounds, all right? I mean, he, he fills out his, um, his suit or his uniform or whatever it is. He, he's handsome. He's healthy. He's hardy. I, I think... We understand even today that the world has an attraction with tall, handsome, powerful men, um, especially to lead the nation into battle as king. And I, I believe God's word is telling us very simply that to the eyes of man, Saul checked off all the boxes. He was young, he was healthy, he was handsome, he was physically impressive in all respects. And to some degree, we will see, I think, in a refreshing way that he's, he's kind of an average Joe as we begin this. He, he is not self-enamored. He, he's not acclaim, or climbing the, the ladder to success. He's not trying to be something that he's not. He's just a dutiful son working hard on his family farm. And that's kind of refreshing. And that really brings us to the bulk of the text. We move from the man uh, to the mission that we find him on. And I'm mindful as we move into this part of the text of um, something Charles Spurgeon has written in relation to this. He says, The smallest trifles are as much arranged by the God of providence as the most startling event. Uh, and that's absolutely true as we begin this text. God's hand is all over the next series of events. Even though, again, I think you could argue the chapter has begun very, very innocently. Now, as readers, we should know, after having read chapter 8, moving into chapter 9, we know that Israel's king is on the horizon. And yet Saul is introduced as one who's aimlessly looking for his father's donkeys. Um, you might contrast that to David, who shows up later on as having effectively cared for his father's sheep, by the way. But let's read on. And again, I want to give Saul fair credit as we begin. We find him gladly obeying his father in a very difficult task, um, which, if we're being honest, you know, we've read about the, uh, the horrible sons of Eli and their disobedience, even the, the sons of Samuel, who have not quite lived up to their father's reputation. Uh, we see Saul in a different light. He's doing good here. Um, he's obeying his father. Um, so we begin with the search here, verses 3 through 5. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. Uh, so Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you, meaning take one of our uh, servants, arise, go and look for the donkeys. And, and he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and he passed through the land of Shalashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalam, um, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, um, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys, and become anxious about us. 
Now, we don't know exactly where uh, Shalashah or Shalem were referring to in, in this region. We know it's certainly within the tribal territory of Benjamin at the time, but we don't have to know the exact graphic detail to get the point. Saul and his companion looked near and far for the missing donkeys with no luck. Okay? The area described in general is a pretty lush region, including the hill country of Ephraim, which was kind of north of the tribal lands of Benjamin. Um, Zuf is over five miles from Saul's hometown of Gibeah. So we're talking about a pretty broad search, okay? at least five square miles at minimum. Um, and it's an area that would have entertained all kinds of hiding places for rebellious donkeys, you know, wanting to eat and, and do what donkeys do. And so we're going to see later that they, they needlessly or fruitlessly search for three days. That's a long search, I would argue. Okay? Anybody ever look for a donkey three days? Um, I think most of us would be getting a little frustrated at that point. Um, they're really looking for a needle on a haystack if you consider the area and the behavior of animals and all that. So at least initially, I think we should give Saul credit for faithfully pursuing these donkeys. Three days. All right, It's a thorough search. And yet, it's kind of hard to know how to read verse 5 when we come to it. Uh, he says to a servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Knowing everything we know about Saul, it's pretty easy to kind of look at this negatively and say, uh, this is an early sign of Saul's tendency to be a quitter, you know, of an impatient character flaw that's going to fester and bloom later, because he is pretty impatient, as we'll see. Um, was he really being a dutiful son here and trying to keep his father from worrying about his safety, or was he just ready to quit? It's hard to know. Again, if, if you read forward, you're going to read negative into this at this point in time. Um, but this is what I, I want to do as we consider Saul. We don't, we shouldn't know that yet, you know. And so let's not, let's not assume this is anything wrong. I, I think he's just being pragmatic. Three days is a long time. But look who takes over the expedition. Um, we see the servant kind of rise to a leadership role here. We see a, a suggestion. Saul wants to abandon the search, um, but the servant has another idea. Uh, and see, we see the servant's interest um, expressed next, uh, verses 6 through 10. Uh, but the servant said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he's a man who's held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man for the bread in our sacks is gone? There is no present to bring to the man of God. Uh, what do we have? Um, servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I'll give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, there's a little subscript the, the word gives us at this time. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. Um, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. Um, Saul said to his servant, Will said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Now, that's kind of a meandering text. And I would argue it meanders that way to kind of um, build suspense. Okay? Now, I'm going to ruin the suspense entirely, just so you know. But um, it, it's building suspense so that we don't get initially that the city in question is Ramah and that the so-called seer being referred to is Samuel. Okay? Um, you, you're not supposed to kind of clue into that until later on in the story. Um, but that's what we're talking about. We're talking about Ramah, Rama, and we're talking about Samuel. And certainly we've got to understand that the sovereignty of God is at work. Um, but, let's give credit, so is this servant. 
one way or the other, we've got to admit that none of the following events that we will see, which leads to the anointing of Saul as king, would have occurred had Saul got his way and simply returned home after three days. Okay? Instead, Israel's future king takes his cues from a suggestion, this spark of interest in God's man in the city from his young servant. And again, it depends on how you want to look at Saul, but it's not an overly encouraging picture of a leader of men that his servant is suddenly taking charge of this expedition this early in his journey. But um, again, that's however you want to read it. It kind of depends on your perspective. But at least note the servant's respect for Samuel here. Um, it is well spoken. Um, and I think it tells us something about him. If we back up here, it says, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who's held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Okay, I think that's an accurate way of describing Samuel and his ministry, and, and I think it leads to that last thing. He says maybe he can tell us what we should do, basically. Um, maybe that statement is just limited to their search for the donkeys, but uh, maybe this servant sensed that there's something greater at work, and, and Samuel has something bigger to tell Saul. Again, the text doesn't really tell us. It's speculation. Um, but one way or the other, Saul's response kind of puts us back into a quandary. Um, it was customary to present gifts, um, certainly to people of respect in the ancient world. The seer probably would have been worthy of such a gift. Um, that's not strange, but, um, you know, we certainly see Saul's wanting to make sure that he's perceived well. You know, if we go, what can we bring the man? Um, we'll see later on in his journey, he's always worried about how he's perceived and what everybody's thinking about him. Um, but also, it's interesting here, for the bread in our sacks is gone. There's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? He's the son of what's referred to in Scripture as a wealthy man, and yet he's run out of money, and yet who has money? Well, his servant is holding on to a quarter of a shekel of silver. Um, again, I'm not going to tell you how to read all this. It's just curious. Um, Saul has no money. The servant has money. Um, anyway, um, it just seems odd to me. Um, but the servant saves the day. They begin to look for the seer, um, Samuel. And this is where God's word kind of gives us this little treatise. Um, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, um, just implying um, it's a legitimate instance of wanting to approach God's man or, or God himself, say, using the process of the lot. Um, they weren't up to anything nefarious here. When you want to do it right and want to hear from God, uh, the seer is literally one who... Um, sees the things of God. Uh, the prophets, later on, are better described as one who was called of God, who spoke God's words. Um, I, I know this seems kind of strange that it just drops in in this text, but I think it's trying to help us understand, um, without naming him again, who, who this man is, that it's Samuel. But it also is kind of a way of letting us know he really is kind of the, the last judge, and he transitions into this role of being a prophet. Um, he's the seer, he's the prophet and as Israel gets a king um, Samuel is no longer the judge, um, they forfeited his judgeship and he really just begins to function as a prophet to the king of Israel, um, I think that's implied here, but there's something I think way more important than all of that that I think is implied here if you read this just on its surface the thing that becomes clear to me is the servant knows who Samuel is but Saul doesn't seem to have ever heard of Samuel. There's no light of um, recognition here in anything that Saul ever says. The servant knows about him, but Saul seems totally unaware of this man of God. 
Now, I, how on earth could he have lived within five, six, seven miles of Ramah, based upon how you want to draw the line in your uh, geography, how on earth could he live that close to Samuel's primary city and not know who he was? It's a fair question, I think. And now maybe, maybe he's just a simple farm boy and his father had always gone to the big national events and he'd stayed home and taken care of the donkeys. He doesn't seem to be very good at finding the donkeys, but anyway, I, I don't know, but somehow it seems that he's blissfully unaware uh, of Samuel and the greater world around him. And yet the nation had been going to Samuel for national religious observances um, for years. At minimum, this seems to indicate a limited spiritual interest in Saul's heart. Again, it's speculative, giving me my opinion, but it seems really, really strange that he acts like he's never heard of the man of God at this point. But we continue with the text. Next we get the information, verses 11 through 13. Um, as they went up the city to, or went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water, said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is here. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He's just coming out of the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. Some have speculated that these young women were undoubtedly more than willing to help a handsome young man along his way, and that's probably true in general. But it's also true uh, that lots of Israel's key figures had important encounters with women drawing water. Conspicuous number, and I don't know, Moses, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Jesus, even if we're being honest. It's curious, uh, and again, I, I'm just, I, I'm suggesting that there's a, a, a lot in this text that helps us understand this is not random, this is not um, just a one-off. Uh, this man that's being introduced is significant to the history and nation of Israel. There's a lot of symbolism, a lot of foreshadowing here. But regardless, the, the women help him. They, they tell him to hurry. They tell him that Samuel has just returned to the city, um, most likely, in my opinion, from the meeting with the nation's elders that led to their demand for a king. So they met with him. They demanded a king. Uh, Samuel said, yeah, God's going to give you a king. Go to your homes. Let me go pray about this. He returns to Ramah. And he's running right into Saul. Um, that's the timing that I believe we're to infer. Um, but we get another key piece of foreshadowing here, at least in verse uh, 13 as well. It says, as soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Now, if you know your Bible history, this should probably ding with you just a little bit. Um, now, clearly... Um, the people of the city see Samuel as their spiritual leader. Um, they're sacrificing to the Lord. They're celebrating together as he's returned. But they're not going to eat until he's first blessed the food or the offering. Uh, lots of examples of spiritual leaders doing this uh, in Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus uh, does it certainly in Mark chapter 6. You know, the uh, feeding of the 5,000. He took the five loaves, two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Uh, this is normative. It's one of the reasons why most of us still say a blessing over our food. Uh, the people of Israel expected their priests, their judge, their Messiah, all their spiritual leaders to really offer up these kinds of prayers. And so the, the women are confident that Saul's going to find Samuel going up to the high place where the offering's going to be rendered so that he can say the public blessing. Now, anyone remember Saul's fatal mistake? Well, not his fatal mistake, his first real mistake. 
Okay, I've, I've mentioned his fatal mistake, which was the Amalekite um, situation where uh, they messed with the spoil. But maybe you remember his first mistake in 1 Samuel chapter 13. We'll get to this. Um, there was a big battle, and says, and he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. See, they were waiting on Samuel to come say the blessing. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. He usurped Samuel's role as the prophet of God or as the priest in this point of the text, and um, God condemns him at that point. Now, um, he couldn't wait on Samuel. If, if only he had listened to the wisdom of these women that were being shared with him here in 1 Samuel um, chapter 9. They said, we're not, we won't do this until Samuel shows up, and he says the prayer. Um, now, again, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I, I think there's a warning here, um, and it's helping us understand some of the mistakes he's going to make. But regardless, in this case, he has a rendezvous with destiny, um, with the very sovereignty of, of God. And so next we come to the intersection. Um, so they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel um, coming out toward them uh, on his way up to the high place. Now, maybe we should chase one more little rabbit here. Um, some may be thrown by this reference to a high place. In general, in Scripture, um, high places tend to be referred to as being negative. Um, the Canaanites and others used high places for idol worship. Israel had been instructed to get rid of all the idols and all the high places. Uh, but I think in this case, there's nothing to make us think this is negative. In fact, if we know the circumstance, we know at this point in time, Israel no longer had a tabernacle. Um, the ark was still parked off in the middle of some guy's farm in the middle of nowhere. They had no temple. I mean, it's likely that Samuel had just made it his custom uh, to render sacrifices to the Lord on a prominent hill in, in Ramah. That's what's being referred to as the high place here so that people can more easily gather around. But uh, I don't think there's anything nefarious here. But in case you were wondering, uh, I think that's worth saying. Regardless, the emphasis here, though, is on the sovereignty of God. Samuel has sent Israel home. He's been waiting on God's provision of a king. Um, we're going to see next week that he has been waiting specifically on Saul. He already knows that. And here the two parties are crossing paths at God's appointed time and place. It's no accident. Um, God's used, you know, um, missing donkeys and, and a helpful servant and all kinds of things to make sure this happens. And it's just a reminder to us that there are no accidents in the plan of God. Um, now, of course, don't misunderstand, don't get your theology wrong. I'm not denying that we live in a fallen world and bad things happen, okay? I'm not implying that God makes all those bad things happen to you, okay? But I am saying that no matter what happens, and no matter whether it's the result of the world, the flesh, the devil, the, the curse, and all those things, I am telling you that God sees and God knows and, and God works in the midst of all that adversity, uh, the earth groans, and, and pain and sorrow are par for the course. And God's not going to eliminate all that suffering until the sun returns and sets all things right at the end of days. But within this broken world, God and His Spirit are always at work. Can I get an amen to that? Do you believe that? Do you understand that to be true? So even if you're here today and, and life has been hard and the start of the new year hasn't gone the way you've wanted it to go, I, I hope you hear what I'm saying. God's at work. He's doing something. Uh, for, for His glory and your good, you just have to learn to trust it. 
and he can turn even the worst things to good and he can redeem redeem any and all circumstances it's what he did with the Christmas story that we explored over the last few weeks when the fullness of time had come there's a lot of adversity in that story and and the earth was groaning and and the situation was bad and the Romans were doing horrible things but God knew that the time was ripe and God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so we might receive adoption as sons Israel um, eventually gets their king now at this point in time He's getting the king, they're getting the king that they had demanded, okay? And yet we know that God is going to work amongst that demand. He's going to eventually bring them around to King David. And eventually King David, on down the line, the line of the tribe of Judah, brings us to Jesus, okay? So even in this, God works amidst mistakes and, and misunderstandings and suffering and shame and all of those things. It doesn't eliminate all the suffering and shame that's part of Saul's reign, and we'll, we'll see a lot of that, but we know that God brings good from the bad. And the point of all this is, is the gospel. God can bring good from our bad. Amen? It, it doesn't matter um, how we're all sinners we're all trapped in our rebellion but god has provided a savior for us according to his perfect plan um, we know we've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of god um, but we also know even though the wages of our sin is death that the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord no matter how bad our story has been up to this point we have the same choices to make that old testament saul had to make we have the same choices to make that new testament saul had to make and we know how those stories diverge. Saul just, Old Testament Saul just kept digging a deeper and deeper hole to him. And I would argue if we look at it in the big picture, Saul's fatal mistake was that when he messed up, he never sought repentance. What about Saul in the New Testament? When he encountered the glory of God on the road to Damascus, he bent his knee. He confessed that Jesus was Lord. He repented of all of his wickedness. He turned and he changed his direction and he never looked back. So church, everyone here this morning, you understand that's the heart of the gospel. Uh, the Savior is offered to each and every one of us, but the, the choice, it comes down to how are we going to respond to the gift of salvation that we're being offered? He's not going to force himself on you. He's not going to manipulate the outcome. If you prefer, prefer the world like we'll see that Saul does, uh, like Israel preferred Saul in this text, you can have that. He won't take it away from you. But why not look instead for God's ultimate fulfillment of all these promises to Israel, God's provision, his son, Jesus Christ looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, even if you rolled in here this morning, beat up and, and worn down, trapped in your sin, and, and ready to give up, my point is that God is at work. He can use missing donkeys or whatever else it may be, but God is at work, and his grace is sufficient. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Let's cooperate with the work of God in our lives. Uh, let's listen when he chastises or rebukes or convicts, and let's bend the knee and let's confess our sin. Let's repent and let's turn and run to Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning as we respond to him?